Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode, you'll hear Lauren Cook. These four guys, I have polished off enough coke for them to do for the whole rest of the evening, and they are not happy with me. One of them, like, punched a wall. Um, That and more. But first, I gotta remind you guys that on February 1st, 2014, we are coming to Seattle. The theme that night for stories is shocking and then on february 7th we're coming to dallas the theme that night is over the top we want you you folks from seattle and dallas to pitch us your stories so that maybe you can be up on our stage and end up on our podcast write to me at kevin at risk show.com now here's the show Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Gawk Ben behind me now. You wanted it, you got it. Gawk Ben, jackass. Today's episode is called Impulsive. Three very different stories where people make sudden, unusual decisions and things get kind of out of hand. In a little bit, we're going to hear from a fella named JJ, who took a workshop with us at thestorystudio.org. But before that, 
We're going to start with writer, actress, comedian Lauren Cook, who told this story at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. We call it Casual Encounter. So when I was 25, two really significant things happened. First, both of my childhood best friends announced that they were getting married at about the same time. And second, my boyfriend at the time, Ryan Bamba, dumped me. (laughs) He invited me to a rock in Central Park. And uh, (laughs) he said, Lore, sometimes I just, I want to be with someone who has a 401k. And so when he said that, I was surprised. Um, uh, Ryan, this is a side note, Ryan was the type of guy who literally, his catchphrase was, you may be the bomb, but I am the bomba. There's there's a lot of shitty wordplay. Um, I was not anticipating that I would be the one getting dumped. So I was, as I said, I was sad and mad and angry and Eventually, I felt like I was getting all these signals that I was behind. I was falling behind. Like, I wasn't making the milestones that I needed to with my best friends and with a career. And so I came full circle, and I was like, I, yeah, I need to get a 401k right away, or no one will ever love me. Um, And so I turned, you know, I went online, as we do. And so I was on, like, OkCupid and LinkedIn for my two goals. Uh, and neither was working. Fuck online dating. Uh, really hated that. Uh, the whole thing was just an uncomfortable interview. So all of this is just background, guys. This is just background to justify the fact that I started spending a lot of time on casual encounters, Craigslist. And you have to justify that. As a straight person, um, this isn't grinder for the gay men out there. This like. Casual Encounters is the bottom of the barrel. Like, Casual Encounters is the, the perverted, maybe violent, <laughs> uh, bottom of the barrel. But, and you know, and that's not to say that people don't dabble. I think a lot of people dabble. Uh, dabble will do ya for Casual <laughs> Encounters. Um, but I spent a lot of time there. I had, like, a designated email address for exchanging pictures and... I would like have dirty chats at work. Um, It was all, I never met anyone in person because I didn't want to get stab raped. But um, (laughs) I, you know, it was fulfilling some need because I kept doing it. Um, Until one day, (laughs) one day I read a post that caught my attention and it said, will you be my date? And I remember thinking like, oh brother, this is gonna be like, will you be my date to lick my balls while my mom licks my ass or whatever uh, the rest of them say. Um, but it was, it was, a, will you be my date for a legitimate date? This guy, his name was Elliot. He, um, his friend was getting married that very weekend and his date had, had dropped out and uh, he bailed, <laughs> bailed on him. And so he needed somebody in three days to, to step in and go to this wedding in New Jersey with him. And I was sort of like, hmm, 
well, uh, I'm free this Saturday. <laughs> and every Saturday. Uh, I, so I failed to mention, when I was so sad, when I was sad about the breakup, I put on about 15 pounds, which is part of the reason that like regular online dating wasn't working for me. I was feeling really, really shitty about myself. As I'm exchanging emails with this guy that I met on Casual Encounters for this wedding, I just... We're making these plans, and I started thinking, like, wait, he seems cool. Like, he seems really cool. Like, he's just like me. Like, all his friends are getting married, and he's just been disappointed by this ex, and I don't know. This might be the romantic story we tell our grandchildren. (laughs) And I pictured him, like, a lot like Paul Rudd. Like, I, like, he wrote emails like a Paul Rudd. And so I was, I didn't, I wanted to ask him for a picture, but I didn't want to be shallow. But I was, like, super amped for this wedding. So cut to the day of the wedding. I get ready to meet my husband. And uh, Elliot was 5'4", at the very tallest. He was over 45 years old. He had slick back hair, and he rocked a lot of rings. He looked like my cousin Vinny, or like if somebody from um, the Jersey Shore, like their sick dad, maybe. (laughs) Like if Ronnie's dad had leukemia, um, that was Elliot. So, but right away, he kisses my hand, and he like pulled out the chair, and he sort of turned on the charm, and... It was a little over the top, but it was kind of working. Like I had been binge eating and crying in public and this was like the first guy to show me some attention. And plus the gears were in motion for this whole wedding. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna make this work. Uh, Eventually we get into the rental car. We have to drive to New Jersey and Elliot hands me a flask, which I was super on board with at the time. Uh, So we're drinking on the way up and he leans over and he said, you know, we should probably coordinate our lies. He didn't want to tell all his friends that he had met me on casual encounters. Shocker. Uh, so I, I was like, oh, right. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. Okay, so we decided that we had met at work. He owned a company, and I was one of his clients. Okay, okay. And then it clicked, like, oh, my God, I can lie through this entire evening. Like, I don't have to go there and, and tell them my sad story. Um, about, you know, being dumped and having, I was temping, I was getting paid like $12 an hour. I can go and just say whatever bullshit spews right out of my mouth. So the minute we walked in, I was on cloud nine, because not only did I have a huge long list of lies that I was dying to tell these strangers, but I had this great audience, because all of the people at the wedding already knew each other. They were all friends already. So I was the new mysterious lady. So everybody kind of wanted to get to know me. You know, it was like, I used to be a lesbian. Um, I was also an acrobat. I was a lesbian acrobat. We, we all lived together. That's how it worked. Uh, <laughs> and by dinner time, I was hitting it out of the park. Like, I, like, all of Elliot's friends loved me. I was telling lots of stories. And then I got up and I was rolling solo. And I made friends with all the bride's family. I made friends with all the groom's family. I was like having one-on-ones, like exchanging phone numbers. Um, If there had been a president of this wedding, I was lobbying hard for that position. (laughs) When the dancing started, I was dancing with the bride, and then I was dancing with the grandma of the bride. I'm like, I'm certainly all over this wedding video. (laughs) I felt like 
I suddenly had a room full of best friends, which was exactly what I was missing. And at about like the 11th hour of the wedding, when the only people who are left are extremely, extremely drunk, I excuse myself to go to the bathroom. And out of the blue, um, one of Elliot's friends, Danny, pops up. And Danny is a really attractive guy. He looks like Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> he asked me if I wanted to do some coke. And I, <laughs> I'm like really notoriously bad at snorting things at all. Like I'm a big nerd about drugs in general. Um, and my first reaction was to be like, but weddings are for families. Like why would we? <laughs> um, but in that moment of like pretending to be this exciting lesbian acrobat, I was like, yes, please, thank you. And so I took the little bag that he gave me, the second time in my life that I'd ever been in contact with cocaine. I go in the bathroom, I come back out, I'm like, I nailed that! I nailed that! And Danny was there waiting, and he had three friends around him, and they're all looking at me very expectantly, and he was like, did you do it? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, do you feel good? And I was like, yeah. He goes, where's the rest of it? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? I did it all. Because <laughs> I really believed that that little baggie was my portion. Like I thought, I had n it never occurred to me that they... So slowly I'm processing that these four guys, I have polished off enough coke for them to do for the whole rest of the evening and they are not happy with me. One of them, like, punched a wall. Um, <laughs> and I'm also, you know, I can see my heart just beating out of my chest. Like, I'm, am I gonna die? Am I gonna... So I need to go find Elliot and tell him what happened. But right away, uh, it sort of felt like somebody turned the lights on. Like, I started seeing the entire reception in this very different way and so I'm looking for Elliot I find the bride and the bride has her dress is torn um, she's smoking a cigarette one of her eyelashes is on her cheek and the other eyelashes on her eyebrow and she's like bitch thank you for coming I'm so glad you came to my wedding you know and then like and then there's two old ladies whose nipples are exposed and there's a guy who had um, a emphysema, like he had like an oxygen tank, but there was also a nitrous tank right near that. It was like just too much for me to handle. And so I, I kind of, I rushed to find Elliot. I go back to the hotel room where he, he was staying the night. And I tell him what happened. I'm like, the, you know, your friends are mad at me. Is this like Pulp Fiction? Am I gonna die? And um, he, he, <laughs> He came to exactly my tits, like that's what... <laughs> and he put his hand, he held my face in his hands and he said, baby, it's okay, I've got more coke. <laughs> <laughs> and then he started rubbing my back, which was kind of comforting and that was nice. And then he started rubbing my ass. And then I was like, oh, this is that moment. It felt very Spring Breakers. Like, I, I knew that I was the girl who wanted to get on the bus and go home. Like, I had had a blast. This was fantastic, but it was time to go home. And so the only thing that was preventing me from going home was finding my sneakers. I had to find my sneakers. And I, so I started aggressively looking around the room for my sneakers, and just as aggressively, um, Elliot is trying to take my clothes off. 
Uh, and so we were doing this sort of bizarre cat and mouse game. Luckily, he was quite a bit smaller than I was. Cause it, um, so he would try to like throw me on the bed, but I would just sort of step to the side and then he would fall on the floor. <laughs> And then I would like go over to that corner and the same thing kept happening, like slam his head into the wall. Um, and eventually he just full on licked the whole side of my face, like all the way up. And uh, that's when I grabbed my bag and I ran down the hall uh, barefoot, left my shoes behind and I was like, thanks for everything. <laughs> um, and then I called a car and I threw up in my purse on the way home. Uh, <laughs> I really was so proud of that, too. I was like, not one drop spell. <laughs> um, and I, I never saw Elliot again. <laughs> but he did text me and call me for about six months. Um, and he really wanted to, like, catch up and give me my shoes. And eventually he resorted to offering me a job because he owned a company and uh, the job came with full benefits, including a 401k. Uh, but I didn't take it. I didn't want that stupid job. Okay, that's it. Thank you. So I was born and raised in Brooklyn, in um, the Bushwick, East New York section of Brooklyn. And my family was a family of immigrants. They were Jamaican. So at this time in the 70s and 80s and 90s, you know, you had a lot of immigrants in New York City in general, but you had a lot of black immigrants from the Caribbean in different parts of Brooklyn, particularly Flatbush, Crown Heights. Bushwick was another area that you had a lot of in big influx of immigrants coming to live and you know, buying like homes and apartments, etc. So that's kind of where I was raised. This is the 1980s, this is the 80s, and crack was you know, abundant in the neighborhood, it was abundant in the area. For me, um, I grew up around drugs in general because I, my father hustled and I had several other relatives who played in that space. So I knew about it, but my mom would tell me real simply, like life is about choices. The time you take to choose to go to a party is the time you could have been studying. The time you choose to go hang out in a corner is the time you could have been doing something else. So when something bad happens, she would always reflect back on choices that's made. And, you know, when you're young, you can, sometimes you can rebound from some choices, but you can't rebound from them all. As I went to school, you know, my mother being the Jamaican woman that she is, she had a lot of pride in education. She didn't finish school, but she went to college. And for the most part, she had a blue-collar job her whole life. So growing up, you know, it was just her, myself, and my other sibling. And she ended up remarrying when I was about... 15 to somebody else, 15, 16, but the guy should be married. He wasn't, to me, a very stellar example of what a man should be. (music) 
So that's kind of the neighborhood that I grew up in. A lot of things kids shouldn't see. A couple of people killed a few people. I could, there's a guy in my neighborhood named Shushan. He was notorious for being a bad dude. He was a robber, a drug dealer. You know, he shot a few people at the time. So he had a reputation in the neighborhood. Went to jail, came back home, you know. So it was easy to fall into that mix because in that kind of neighborhood, they're always looking for somebody that's young, that's tough, that got heart, that's not scared of doing certain things, you know, to put on a team with them. You know, because you, when you're young, you get less time or, you know, it's, it's just your perspective of risk is different than when you're an adult. You don't have children, you don't have responsibilities, so, you know, your, your perspective of risk is, is super low and the reward for you is a lot higher. Especially when you're growing up around certain things where, you know, your life expectancy is very young, is, is not to live past 25, and you don't see a lot of wealth in your household. The people that I hanged around, you know, the majority of them, I would say, um, did not go to college. The majority of them, I would say, they went to high school, and probably high school was probably it. Every person that taught me, and I went to public school, generally looked like you. Um, when I say look like you, you were, you're white and I'm black. Everybody that went to school with me now, students, though, were generally black, Latino. So, thank God, I did very well in school, you know. High SAT score in the school's history. I was just very, had a very good memory. wasn't very good at doing work, but I had a good memory, so I could pretty much, um, if you would tell me something, I could pretty much retain it during test time. So when I got to college, it was a very a rude awakening because there's too much information for you to remember. I went to a small school in, in um, Connecticut called Wesleyan University. Very good academic school, but you know that first year was a rude awakening because now everybody around you is white, and everybody that goes to school with you is white, and everybody that teaches you is white. Different dynamic, right? And then you're also meeting black people now who also didn't grow up in the kind of lifestyle that you know. You know, I have to, I have to essentially learn how to study, learn how to read, and learn how to write all over again. You know, when you come from where I come from, and then you get exposed to that kind of lifestyle, when you get exposed to going to school with, like, Dustin Hoffman's daughter went to school with me, and governor of New Jersey, Christine Whitman, her daughter went to school with me. So, you know, you go into school with these people, and it's like, okay... You've seen their moms and dads picking up in like limousines or town cars at, during homecoming or whatever the case is. And you're like, wow. So you, when you get that exposure now, it's kind of like, okay, I can't. I'm not going to go back to that. I got to make something of myself. When I got out of college, I, leaving college, I had to figure out what it is I want to do with my life. And um, I decided to go work on Wall Street. And I could have got an apartment with some buddies or some friends of mine, but... My mother, you know, she lived in a brownstone in Brooklyn. It was kind of like, well, I got this big this house. My tenants are moving. Why don't you live upstairs and just pay me rent rather than give it to somebody else? So for me, it was kind of like, yeah, I know home. I could go home. It's not a big deal. At least for me, I always heard the thing about called black flight, where you would hear once your people got educated and started to make some decent living for themselves, they would never come back and return to the communities that they came from. And I didn't want to be that guy. I didn't want to be the guy that was removed from his community like I couldn't empathize with what still was going on in these urban environments and I don't I didn't want that to happen to me I still to this day don't want that to happen to me so as a result you know I decided to you know I, I can come back I'm single I you know I, I, I can this is not a big deal and some people who I, I, I won't say jealous but 
they don't appreciate kind of what you accomplished. To them, it's not really a big deal. It's like, all right, why you came back home? So, and you come back home and then, you know, you, you get back into this mentality of surviving, living for today, not for tomorrow. You get, I got, and I can't speak for everybody, but I got caught up again. Once again, you start hanging around with the same folks who, don't, who are not doing anything. They're thinking very small. So even though I was working and when I came home on the weekends, I would see some folks, because you're working as a banker, you're not really coming home, you're working 60 hour weeks, right? When you did get home, when I, that little free, free time I have, you're seeing folks and they, they talk a little bit of shit, and it's all right. Some of them did, some of them didn't. But I, and I was pretty respected. You know, I had a decent amount of respect in the community that I was from. I was, a, I was a good fighter when I grew up. I used to get into a lot of fights, so fist fights. People knew, you know, I'm protect myself. But you still have some people who, you know, I'm going to call them haters, but a little bit of haters. One day, I happened to come home from work early. And as I was walking past that street, I happened to see some guys that I knew, like I knew pretty much all my life. They had, a couple of them was outside the car, a couple of them was inside the car talking. So they started a conversation, like, hey, what's going on, what you up to? Just shooting the shit like we normally do, because I play basketball with a lot of these guys on Sundays, so they see me in the park, you know, I mean, I still was in the community. And as we was having this conversation, you know, this guy wasn't involved in the center of attention anymore. Now, to give you some perspective on Shushan's temperament, his name was Shushan because he was real dark. And, like, I would see or hear stories of what things he would do. For example, he might see a party outside and can't get into the party and then shoot outside so he could shut the party down. He's a guy that, if you had jewelry on and you were young, he would try to rob you for your jewelry and stick you up. He had been shot multiple times. He has shot multiple people. He's been in jail several times. So at the time, I was about 24. This guy's probably like 34, 35. So about 10 years older than me. But his reputation was that of someone who, you know, was a very dangerous person. He told me to shut up first. This was what the call. He told me to shut up. I was like, what are, you, what are you doing over here? Why don't you go? You don't belong over here. That was the exact word. You don't belong over here. What are you doing over here? I looked at him. And I'm like, what? I'm like, you my father. I can do, do what I want. I'm a grown man. You a grown man. Like, I ain't talking to you. Mind your business. And his friends start laughing at him in the car. Once his friends start laughing at him, you know, I think he, he was offended. He was like, yo, you know what I do to you? You know, you know what I, you know, I hurt you. And I looked at him. I'm like, so come do it then. Since you, you're just a big and bad person. Like, I'm not scared of you. I know what you're capable of, but that doesn't mean that I can't do the same thing. I'm not scared of you. So he comes to the car. He, he like reached as if he had like a weapon. So I, I had a bag because I would always carry around my laptop computer with me. The bag that I was carrying at the time, I dropped it on the floor. I looked around. I was like, okay, what, you got a knife or something? And he didn't have a knife. He was just trying to scare me initially. But then he approached me and he swung at me. When he swung at me, I, I boxed. So I knew, my immediate instinct was to, to fight back. And I, you know, I, I hit him a few times. And as I was getting the best of him, he said, open the trunk, open the trunk. As if he was going to get his gun. That's when I realized, okay, this is not a game anymore. But I was so upset because, you know, I hadn't been around that level of, like, intensity in a very, very long time. So I ran. I ran from the street that I was on. He, when we were talking, we are talking on pretty much on the corner of a block that I lived on. So I had to run around them and I ran to my house. Now, growing up, I always kept a gun in my house. I've owned a gun since I was 16 years old. I own a 9mm legally since I was 16 years old. I've never had to use it. I've always had it, and I shot it a few times, and you know, but never at anybody. 
but in my kind of neighborhood, you got to make sure you always have something like that because you always hear stories of folks' houses being broken into. Or, so this is the time I have to go use it. So I went to my house, dropped my bags, and the level, I was so angry that I pretty much forgot about everything that I, that I had going for me. And I began thinking about, okay, how am I going to get away with this murder that I'm about to commit? I got the gun. I got some black gloves. And I ran outside. And it was about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, late August, broad daylight. So when I ran down the street with the gun in my hand from my house, I was headed back toward where the car was. And he had to see me. He didn't have no choice because he was there. When he was there, he knew I was going to come back because that's what people like me do. And that's what people like him do. They come back because that's what you know. So when Peyton told me to come up with the gun and he ran toward me, he knew already that, okay, this is going to be a real ugly situation real, real quick. And ran in front of the gun. Peyton is a good friend of my, actually, he's a brother, older brother of one of my friends that I grew up with. And Peyton also sold drugs out of state, sold drugs in New York. Um, he had been to jail for a couple of times, but I grew up with Peyton a lot. So I know him very well to the point that, like, you know, I, 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 we would play basketball together. I talk shit to him, he talk shit to me. And he said, don't do it, don't do it. You're going to lose too much. Don't do it. It ain't worth it. And as I was shaking with the gun in my hand, I told him to move. I said, Peyton, move out the way, move out the way. And he wouldn't move. He said, don't do it, don't do it. He ain't worth it. You gonna shoot him or he gonna shoot you? Like, you ain't worth it. You don't really wanna do this. And he didn't believe I was gonna shoot him. So he moved out the way. He's like, you're not gonna do it. And I started to point the gun and I was gonna press the trick. He said, no, no, no. And he grabbed my hand and I pushed him away and he grabbed my hand again and I hit him. I was gonna shoot him. He's like, you really don't wanna do this. If you do this, just recognize there's no coming back from this. You don't wanna be like this. This is not you. And he grabbed my hand, and I saw people look at me, look on the street, and he pushed my hand down. And I was furious because I was real, real close to shooting him, and I felt like I should have still shot him anyway. And I didn't do it. And he, and he walked me back to my house. He was like, yo, go, go in the house, go in the house. Put the gun away, go in the house. And I went in the house, and I went, upstairs, I went to my roof, and I looked on the roof, and I was like, okay, where can I hide the gun just in case somebody calls the cops? And I hid the gun. I came back downstairs, and I stayed in my house that night. And I was furious because I was real, real close to shooting him, and I felt like I should have still shot him anyway. I was probably more upset about that for the first three hours that I was in the house. I was probably more upset that he didn't let me do it. Then, after that phase of rage, I was in a state of shock. Like, wow, I almost, I almost shot somebody, and I would have been in jail right now. Or I would have to figure out, like, put the gun on him and think through the rationale of how I got away with this. And I prayed to God. And I said, God, I got to make some choices. Because if this is going to happen to me when I'm in this community, then I need to leave at this point. And lo and behold, a month later, uh, I went to a seminar about business school. And I ended up applying to grad school. I applied to Harvard Business School and I got in and I left subsequently the next year. We live in a society where a lot of men, they only have pride. And pride is a dangerous thing. It's important to have pride, pride in your work, pride on how you carry yourself. But on the flip side, that pride can also get you in trouble. And a lot of people right now are in jail because of pride. In the community where I live, once again, right, you can't be, could be considered quote-unquote soft because then things will consistently happen to you. Right? It's almost like getting bullied. 
you can't get bullied. Because when the first time you get bullied, then everybody's gonna, get, gonna try to bully you, no matter what age you are. And even now as an older man, sometimes now I could probably let things pass because I'm a little bit more seasoned, I'm a little bit more mature. But at that particular time, 23, 24, you still live in the mentality, even with a college education, that it can happen. It can happen and I could lose all of this in a split second. This is the Blind Boys of Alabama behind me now. want to take just a moment to remind you that with the holidays here, you simply don't have the time to go to the post office with the traffic and the parking. It's going to be packed with everyone mailing gifts and packages. So do what I do. Use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. Everything you do at the post office, you can do right from your desk with your own computer and printer. You can buy and print official U.S. postage, print for any letter or package the instant you need to. And then your mail person picks it up. It's so easy. We use Stamps.com at Risk in the Story Studio, and you should too. And right now you can get this special offer when you use our promo code RISK. It's a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. And while you're online, make sure to visit Squarespace.com. Squarespace is just about the most user-friendly, all-in-one way to create a beautiful website. You're going to be knocked out by how professional their design templates are. You just drag and drop your photos and text from your desktop or a blog. They process the images so that your site will look great on any device. And their blogging functions and customer support just can't be beat. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and their offer code there is RISK12. That's squarespace.com. The offer code is RISK12. One final story today from one of our favorites, Mr. Danny LaBelle. He told this one at the Risk Live show at the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles. We call it That Darn Cat. When I was 19 years old, I moved to the Upper East Side of Manhattan, started college, started comedy, and was selling light bulbs uh, to businesses door to door to make money. And I didn't like that much, the light bulb part of that. I don't like the college part much either, but it doesn't feed the story. I, uh, so I was looking for something else. I wanted to figure out another way to make money, and, and I really didn't want to have a day job. And I came upon a species of hairless cat 
known as the Cornish Rex at a pet shop on Lexington Avenue and 78th Street called Pets on Lex. And I had an idea. A light bulb went off, you could say. <laughs> the cat was $2,000. And I remembered a conversation with a friend of mine recently who was saying, you know, they'd love to have a dog, but their building doesn't allow dogs. And they have cat allergies. And this is a hypoallergenic, hairless cat. And I started thinking there's probably a lot of rich people on the Upper East Side of Manhattan in this predicament. And I could probably become pretty successful breeding these hypoallergenic, hairless cats. <laughs> and I wouldn't have to sell light bulbs anymore. I devised a whole plan. I started walking around the doorman buildings on Central Park East. I noticed they all have bulletin boards, like somebody's got a couch for sale. And I noticed some people had, like, uh, English bulldog puppies for sale. I'm like, oh, I'm going to beat those motherfuckers, you know? <laughs> Just wait till I unleash these Cornish Rexes. <laughs> I approached several doormen with a business proposition before I started to fill out the waters. Where I'm like, you know who all the lonely people are who would be cat ladies <laughs> if they didn't have cat allergies. <laughs> I got a new hot product coming in. <laughs> you pitch the cats to the right people, make the connections for me, I give you 10% on every cat sale. That's a good deal, right? And a few doormen were like, yeah, I could do that, you know? And I was like, this is, this, I can't fail. Pet shop selling them for 2,000 bucks, have seven of them in a litter, $14,000, that's math, folks. I, uh, <laughs> I had $1,000, I had a friend named Dave. Uh, <laughs> I said, Dave, I need another 1000 to get this started. Then we'll save up and we'll get another cat. We split the money, what do you think? And my friend Dave's kind of an idiot, so he said, yeah. <laughs> I mean, not more so than me, we're both idiots in this story. <laughs> so Dave and I go to Pets on Lex and we buy a Cornish Rex. And we name it Lex. It's getting Dr. Susie, folks. <laughs> and upon this Lex, there is put a hex. And I. Uh... <laughs> so we asked the guy, we're preparing to buy a female. We bought the male. We said, when are you going to have some females in? The guy says, two weeks. And we're like, oh, that's enough time to raise whatever we need. And, and that's great. He says, yeah, come in two weeks. We'll have a female. In the meantime, we bought the mail, brought it back to my apartment. It proceeded to hump the shit out of everything I owned. I mean, <laughs> it was the horniest cat in the world. And I was thinking, like, it was great for a cat breeding business. I was, at first, very excited. I was like, this is the stallion right here, this guy. He's a stud. We're going to have so many kittens, I'm going to be a millionaire. And that was like day one. And then day two, the pillow was sticky. <laughs> and then it, it kept going and going. I'm like just counting down. Two weeks, two weeks. We're getting the money together. We're going to get this, with this female. He's, he's going to have something to fuck. He's, it's going to work out, you know? In the meantime... Everything I own is getting covered in kitty cum. Everything. <laughs> Two weeks go by. 
we have the money, we show up at Pets on Lex, two eager entrepreneurs ready to start their lives in the cat breeding business. <laughs> this is right at the height of cat breeding too, folks. <laughs> Before everyone was doing it. And the guy says, hey listen, we hit a bump in the road. Well, it is a bump, because technically, well, you'll find out. The breeder got breast cancer. And, uh, <laughs> that's a bump in the road. It's not the road, but it's a bump. <laughs> All right. <laughs> he tells us the breeder that he gets the cats from is in Hungary, which is, you know, I guess he was keeping it local. And, uh, and she had just found out she has breast cancer. He's like, she's got to take care of that first before she ships out any, that's a reasonable thing, right? She's a, before she ships us any more cats, the business, her business has been put on hold because of the breast cancer diagnosis. So we're like, well, what are we supposed to do? You know, we gotta get a female. He's like, I don't know when the next uh, female's gonna, you can keep coming in and checking back with me. In the meantime, I recommend you guys look elsewhere. So we did, and we could not find another Cornish Rex in the tri-state area, and we weren't ambitious enough to leave the tri-state area. <laughs> We were looking especially to color match them because we're like, oh, nobody's gonna want a multicolored hypoallergenic hairless cat, you know? <laughs> Time goes on, cat is relentless. <laughs> everything I own is now covered in cat cum, everything. And I start saying, Dave, you know, we're business partners in this, you know? I think maybe you should uh, take the cat for a little while <laughs> over to your place switch up the responsibility, and I think that's part of being part of this kind of business. And he's like, Dan, I'm not taking the cat. That's how he talks. Good impression if you knew him. Uh, Dan, I'm not taking the cat. This is your idea, it's your responsibility. I'm like, yeah, but you stand to profit 50% of all that great cat money that's coming in, you know? That's not fair. He's like, I'm not taking the cat. No, it's not happening. I had to stand up for myself. I'm like, Dave, if you don't take this cat soon, I'm getting him neutered, and the whole business is done. He's like, I don't care, you'd never do it. I'm like, don't call my bluff, but I didn't want to do it, you know, it's a big investment. So I kept giving him extensions, extension and extension. I'm like, three more weeks, if you don't take this cat. And he's blowing right through these extensions. He's not even showing any signs that he might take the cat. And one day I hit my breaking point and I got that cat neutered. Business over. Business over, but I still had a cat. And he hated me. He hated me from the start when he came back to my crappy apartment, and he's like, this is not what $2,000 cats are supposed to live in. He's like, I'm not supposed to be slumming it with this guy. Then I think he figured out he was part of a harebrained business scheme. Then I cut his balls off. Then he was part of a failed harebrained business scheme. This cat hated me. <laughs> as soon as he couldn't ejaculate all over everything, he started peeing all over everything I uh, I would bring my laundry back, I'd fold it at the laundromat, bring a whole nice, neat, clean pile of folded laundry, put it down in the room for a minute, come back covered in cat piss, covered. And he'd just like look at me like, fuck you, man. <laughs> The other reason we named him Lex is because he was evil. <laughs> it's a Lex Luthor reference. So me and the evil cat lived together for quite some time, four years. 
And he traveled with me to several apartments. We got kicked out of the Upper East Side, moved to the Upper West Side, lived there for a while, moved to Midtown, lived there for a while, moved to Brooklyn. We're now in Bushwick, and uh, I just moved in with my friend, and his apartment is infested with roaches. I'm like, how do you live like this? He's like, eh, it doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> but I'm telling you, there were like hundreds of roaches, like running around. Like they, they, they weren't even nervous of humans anymore because he'd been living with them peacefully for so long. <laughs> they'd become desensitized. Like, you walk in, they'd come right up to you. <laughs> They're human friendly. So I'm like, well, I want to get rid of these roaches. He's like, well, I'll call the landlord. Call her up. She sends over the most ghetto team of exterminators. I don't know about exterminators or how it's supposed to work, but I'm pretty sure how it's not supposed to work <laughs> is that two guys show up and one of them looks like Jesse from Breaking Bad and the other one looks like Big Pussy from The Sopranos and the kid that looks like Jesse's got a little bottle of chemicals and he's spraying them and he's yelling at the big dude, stop man, stop, why aren't you stopping? And the guy's like, I'm fucking stomping. And he's river dancing all over my kitchen, <laughs> smashing roaches to the point that I had a picture on the wall that actually fell and the glass shattered from the frame. <laughs> anyway, when they got there, they're like, oh, you got a cat, you probably shouldn't have that cat here because uh, you know these chemicals are deadly for animals. Uh, you better get him out of here right away, you know? I was like, oh, he's pretty sensitive. He doesn't even have hair to block him from the <laughs> chemicals. My friend Genevieve, Genevieve had just, uh, not long before that, loaned me $300. So I was like, ah, oh, that's a friend who does favors, you know? <laughs> I was like, hey, Genevieve, you want to watch my cat for a little while? And she's like, oh, yeah, I'd love to. So I bring the cat over to her place. He's chilling there, and the guy says, yeah, leave it for like, you know, about a week and let the chemicals set in. And Genevieve's like, cool, cool, I'll chill with the cat for a week. During that week, I get a phone call that I, I can do a month in the UK, three weeks after that week. So I was like, oh yeah, I'd love to do a month in the UK. Genevieve, I call her up, I'm like, hey, what's happening? She's like, oh, I'm loving having this cat here. I'm like, would you like to hold on to him for a little longer? I just got booked in three weeks for a month in the UK. I'm gonna have to find someone to watch him then anyway. It doesn't make sense, all the back and forth. So she goes, yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I love having a cat. This is great. Uh, okay, cool, cool. Go out to the UK, do the shows, I come back. I'm like, Genevieve, I got to get that cat back. And she's kind of like never around when I want to get the cat, you know? <laughs> like I call her up, I'm like, oh, well, when should I come by? She'll be like, three o'clock. I get there, her doorman's like, oh, she's not home. I don't know. We just couldn't coordinate for some reason, you know? Then I get another call. You want to come back out to the UK, do another month? I was like, when? They're like, in another few weeks. I go, oh, shit. I said, Genevieve, I left her a message. I got another booking in the UK. You want to hold on to the cat? Then she calls me right back. Yeah, 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 no problem. <laughs> no problem, easy. The next time I come back, she's like completely like off the grid, you know? I'm like... <laughs> now I start to suspect some foul play, you know? A cat napping is underway. So I run into her in a comedy club. I'm like, well, what's going on? I've been trying to get Lex back, you know? What, what, what's happening? And then she, like, she drops it. She goes, oh, you're not getting that cat back. You're not a good cat owner. He doesn't even like you. He needs a stable home. <laughs> I was like, it's not your decision to make. It's a $2,000 cat. That's an investment I made. You can't take that cat. And she's like, well, you're not getting him back. And I don't like when people walk all over me, you know? <laughs> I was like, there's no way she's just going to steal my cat. I can't stand for this. I'm at home. I'm stewing about it. I'm like, this is not right. 
Oh, how am I powerless? I can't be powerless. How do I get in? I gotta break in and get my cat back. I was like, I can never get in. It's a doorman building. And I concoct one of the stupidest plans I've ever come up with. Here's a detail I left out about my friend Genevieve. She's a sex addict. <laughs> and she's open about it, so I'm okay sharing it. Uh, we, <laughs> we used to uh, hang out Sunday nights at a place called The Parlor on 86th Street. And they had karaoke. It was a big hookup scene. You could hook up with a lot of people there. Every Sunday night around 1 a.m., she'd take another guy back up to her apartment at the end of the night. So I know what kind of guy she likes because we've been friends for a long time. <laughs> I was like, I just got to plant a guy in there. <laughs> I can get this cat back. <laughs> so now... I start going around. She likes hairy Italian Brooklyn guys. So I start hanging out at Carmine's Pizza in my neighborhood. <laughs> and I'm approaching guys. Very awkward. Hey, buddy, uh, you got laid recently? Yeah. And they, they get all offended, you know? They're very homophobic, these hairy Italian guys. They think I'm hitting on them or something. Hey, 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 whoa, whoa. I go, no, no, it's not me, man. I know a girl, she'd, she'd have sex with you, no problem. And like, get the fuck out of here, fucking, fucking weirdo, leave me alone, man. I actually found a guy after a comedy show. He came up to me, he was like, hey man, pretty funny, bro. He came to me, I was like, oh, this is a good opportunity. I'm like, hey, you got, you got laid recently? You have a girlfriend? He goes, no, no, man, it's been a dry spell. I'm like, I know a girl will fuck you, no problem, no problem. <laughs> He's like, all right, give me your number. I'm like, eh, it's not as simple as that, you know? <laughs> Something I'm gonna need you to do for me. <laughs> I'm like, I'm gonna take you down to the parlor with me on a Sunday night. 1 a.m. rolls around, I'm gonna point a girl out to you. I'll tell you what to buy her to drink. I'll tell you what to say to her, what compliments she likes and everything. Then you go back up to her apartment, guaranteed sex. I, I promise you, if you're confident that sex is gonna happen, then it will happen. Once she falls asleep, I'm gonna need you to steal my cat back for me. I'll be waiting downstairs in front of the lobby with a getaway car. And the guy's like, yeah, all right, I'll give this a try. Go to the parlor, 1 a.m. comes around, me and Genevieve are there, you know, we're okay, pretending that I'm okay with the fact that she stole my cat, you know? Look at the guy, I'm like, now's the time, make the move, you know? He swoops in, beautiful, flawless, perfectly. They're hand, they're I'm watching from afar with a devious smile, you know? <laughs> Finer drinks, charming, they leave. Go back to the place. I'm like, this is great. I call my friend Dave, who I originally went into business with, because he didn't like Genevieve. He hated her. So he was back in, you know? <laughs> He's like, Dan, that's our cat. You've got to get that cat back from Genevieve. She doesn't deserve to have it. That's half my cat. Dave and I are waiting with a getaway car into the wee hours of the morning. And I'm texting this guy. Hey, what's going on? I'm downstairs. Where are you? Bring the cat. No reply to any of these texts. And uh, we're like, well, maybe he fell asleep. I don't know what the hell's wrong with this guy, you know? Finally, we give up. 
The next day I'm calling him, he's not answering his phone, and I was persistent. I just kept calling him and calling him until he finally was like, what? What do you want, bro? I go, what happened last night? He goes, bro, you're a weird guy. I don't, I don't want to get involved in the cat thing. <laughs> I go, what happened? Did you get laid? He goes, it's not important. She's a nice girl. I, I like her. I'm like, what do you mean you like her? You, f you fell in love with her? He goes, look, it's not important. You, I, I don't know. You've you got to work it out with her. It's some strange shit. I don't even know about whose cat that really is, you know. I'm, I'm going to see her again. I don't really want to be involved as the guy who took the cat. I think we might have something here. I'm like, you don't have anything here. She's a sex addict. You're one in a million. I was getting her so mad. <laughs> you got nothing here. He's like, all right, just don't call me anymore. He hangs up. In his defense, I was a maniac in this story, you know? <laughs> it's fair to say I was slightly out of my mind. <laughs> I'm sitting at home, I'm trying to concoct a plan B. She calls me up, she's like, I know what you tried to do. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, he told me, the, the, the loser that you sent up there with me, he told me the whole thing about how you were trying to get him to take the cat. I'm like, he told you all that? She goes, yeah, after we slept together. I go, you slept with him and he, he tells you that? She goes, I don't want anything to do with him anymore, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. I'm like, this idiot blew it for both of us. You know, he really, I'm sitting at home, I'm like, this is fucked up, I can't, uh, I have, I'm, I'm running out of ideas how the hell to get my cat back. <laughs> And then it starts to dawn on me, I don't, I don't know if I really want that cat back. <laughs> I started thinking how much of a pleasure it was not having that cat. In fact, it was really just about the fact that I didn't like that she took the cat against my will. I'm sure if she would have even just asked me for the cat, she could have had that cat. But So I was like, you know what? She could keep the cat, but I didn't want to tell her. I didn't want to give her the satisfaction. That's, that's where I was at. Until a few months later, when Christmas time rolled around, she put up a picture on Facebook of her and the cat in Santa suits. <laughs> and that, I don't know, something about that warmed my heart. <laughs> I never saw that cat look so happy. <laughs> cat really was where he belonged, living with a girl from Greenwich, Connecticut, in a fancy Upper West Side apartment. He wasn't slumming it anymore, he was dressed up, <laughs> ready to entertain for the Christmas party. He should have never been with a Jew in the first place. It was a waspy cat. That's when I called her up and I said, hey listen, you know, saw the picture, no harm done, you can keep the cat. And then she's like, is this a ploy? Is this a scam to get? I go, no, 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 this is for real. I'm even thinking about getting a dog. My neighbor Blanco at the time, Ecuadorian gangster across the hall, had a litter of pit bull puppies and I was seriously considering getting one. The only reason I wouldn't is because I was thinking I might still get that cat back somehow. And then I couldn't have the, I was like, this is a stupid thing, you know, keep the cat. So she goes, all right, come, come to the Christmas party then, you know, no harm done. <laughs> if I come to the Christmas party, it's the first time I'd seen the cat in a very long time. He looked at me like, fuck you, I'm telling you. <laughs> he, he went right up, jumped on her lap in his little Santa suit. <laughs> he didn't want nothing to do with me at all. I was like, oh yeah, 
That's right. That cat never really belonged with me in the first place. As time went on, a few years went on, and Genevieve and I remained friends and saw the cat a bunch more times. And one day she called me up crying. She's like, the cat's got a heart blockage. Some kind of a heart murmur affected the cat, and his back leg stopped working, and she brought him to the vet. The vet said that there was a surgery they could do, but the chances of it surviving the surgery were very low, and the surgery was $5,000, and even if it did survive, it might reoccur right away. It would have to be on all kinds of medication for the rest of its life. And she's like, what should we do? So I'm back in it now. I'm like, what should we do? <laughs> she's like, this is our cat. Shit, there's a $5,000 vet bill, I'm back in it, you know? <laughs> now it's our cat again. So we really thought about it, and it was emotional, you know? And uh, we decided to put the cat to sleep, which was really hard. We were both crying on the phone together. It was like the end of an era. She got the cat cremated and put it in an urn, which is very strange. That's <laughs> particularly weird behavior for anybody to have a cat dust on their shelf. <laughs> I moved out here to LA. She shortly after moved to LA, went to visit her recently. There's Lex on her shelf. She still carries him around with her everywhere she goes. And I told her, I said, I might, I might tell this story and uh, how do you feel about that? And the only problem she had with this whole story was she's like, you better tell people that I still say you owe me $300. <laughs> and I'm like, you got a $2,000 cat for me. <laughs> She wants to take it to Judge Judy, and uh, that's not important, but we might do that. I think that'd be funny. I, uh, but anyway, that's the story of Lex the Cat and uh, how I am a failed cat breeder. Thank you, guys. That is all for this week, folks. This is the Weaker Thans behind me now. We have Risk Live shows coming up in New York and Los Angeles on December 19th. We're at the Pit in New York on that night with Melina Williams. We're at Nerdmelt on that night, the 19th, with James Domian and Satya Baba. Don't forget, if you live in Seattle or Dallas, uh, we are looking for submissions for pitches if you'd like to be in our upcoming February shows in one of those two cities, email me, kevin at risk-show.com. Tell me what story you'd like to tell. If you'd like to purchase someone a wonderful gift for the holidays, don't forget that the entire first season of Risk is no longer available on iTunes for free. But you can get the whole thing for just $20 if you go to our shop at risk-show.com 
That's a savings of $5.74. The whole first year of our programming of Risk is now available at risk-show.com slash shop. Another lovely gift would be a one-on-one storytelling coaching session with me or any number of workshops that we're going to be offering in January and February. Just go to thestorystudio.org to find out more about that. And don't forget, we are listener-supported, folks. We are a proud member of the Maximum Fun Network of Podcasts, And if you'd like to help keep Risk running, we very much so need your help. Just go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and make a one-time contribution or become a member and be sure to earmark your contribution for Risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Constables reported having seen this lady's pussy. You can see my pussy.